This presentation was given at the Monastic Conference on the Environment, Gethsemane 3. It was given by Dr. Stephanie Kaza. The title of her talk, What is Science Telling Us Today? Let us now begin our morning session. I'm James Wiseman, moderating this morning, and very happy to introduce Professor Stephanie Kaza, Professor of Environmental Studies at the University of Vermont, also the founder of the University of Vermont Environmental Council, and a past president of the Society for Buddhist Christian Studies. Stephanie, as you know, will be with us all morning making presentation, but also has worked out a, a special format so that at times we will be breaking up into small groups. There will also be occasion towards the end of the morning to have questions and answers from the group as a whole. So we'll let Stephanie explain the format. Well, it's really a delight to be here today and join you um, to provide some background here on our whole discussion. I especially want to thank the organizers and, of course, Gethsemane for hosting us and all the hard work that's gone into bringing us together. And I would like to also offer some credits right here at the beginning. Um, This was a big task to give you something about the state of the world from which to springboard. (laughs) I teach an introductory class called, um, you know, Introduction to Environmental Studies, and that takes a whole semester to cover all this material. And then, of course, any single lecture could be another whole course. So um, I've drawn quite a bit on our introductory textbook, uh, Environmental Science by Cunningham, and also a recent book from the Yale Dean of the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, Gus Speth. His book, Red Sky at Morning, gave a good framework for this, as well as a number of State of the World volumes. So I'm looking to the people who have tried to give the big picture in some summary ways and uh, offering that most recent (coughs) material to you. so I should also say that my, my own background that I bring to this in my scholarship area is Buddhist environmental thought. So I look forward to talking with you about Buddhist perspectives on the environment and um, in, in dialogue with uh, Christian perspectives. But for this particular talk, this is not a religious talk until the, the very last slide, I think, but it's really to try and uh, set our minds up for the scope of what we're facing. So before I even go to the next slide um, and leave you, uh, take you away from the beautiful Lake Champlain here and the University of Vermont, my own home ecosystem, I would like you to um, either make a physical note with, in handwriting or a mental note of two things. And that we'll be able to use that later in our small group sessions. So while your mind is still fresh and unimpacted <laughs> by All I'll bring you. So the first thing that I'd like you to um, uh, write down or make a mental note of is a particular environmental concern that you're engaged with today in a a physically active way, in some way at your center or you personally. You're doing something with it, whether it's at an institutional level or a personal level, a community level. So something that's already caught your attention and that you're already working with. So just one of those. And if there isn't one, then you can have two of the next thing, okay? (laughs) So either write it down so you'll remember in, you know, 45 minutes when we 
are working in our smaller groups or just remember in your mind. And then the second one is an environmental concern that's on your mind but you're not yet engaged with or you don't know how to engage it. But it's still uh, important to you. That might be the edge of your own uh, questioning or seeking or need for a community around this. But that's all you need. One you're maybe working with and one you're not quite sure how to work with. And as I said, if you don't have any in Category 1, have two in Category 2. Now, I started with that because I've learned from my students that it's very important to stay grounded in the arena of your own work uh, when you start to think about the environment because there's so many scales at which so much is happening. Uh, The local, the regional, the national, the international, the cosmic. Um, And it's a lot to take in. So I'm offering this in a contemplative spirit even though there's a lot of information on these slides. So the way the talk is organized is to really to get a picture of where we stand today and what some of the uh, most prominent uh, threats to uh, biodiversity and ecosystems, life on Earth, as well as the most prominent threats to human health that are environmentally um, based. And then we'll look um, in the second half of the talk, I've broken it in two, the second half we'll look at uh, ecological footprints have a way to analyze and understand, and systems drivers. So what's, what's pushing things in what directions? So let's get a sense here of the state of the world. Our big context really is uh, many of these things you'll know. And by the way, uh, you shouldn't feel a need to write any of this down because I can just pass this PowerPoint on to the wiki site, I'm sure, and then people can look at it again. So let it kind of wash over you. So we know we've been losing a lot of species, losing a lot of habitat. Um, the population has you know, doubled since a number of us were born, and uh, many resources compromised. The new technologies, as we heard about last night, are having big impacts. Consumerist economies are on the rise, not just here, but in uh, China, India, in, in many parts of the developing world. We know we're close to peak oil, and of course we've all heard about climate change at this point. So... Um, Science has a lot to offer to this, but it's by no means the only player in the field. There's you know, many active players in social science, from uh, economics to policymaking, also in the humanities, religion, literature, and so on. So I'm going to really be giving you the ecological view here, coming primarily from the field of ecology, who are uh, trying to track trends at every level, at the, the small-scale levels and the bigger scales, and, and some of those... Um, uh, electronic technologies have made a whole new kind of science possible in putting together data from all around the globe to start to do modeling and see systems dynamics and so on. So it, it's very complex, but, but our amount of information is, is 
uh, quite a bit higher than in the past. But let's just look at our century and then the last 20 years. So in this 20th century, just one decade, I mean one century, the population has quadrupled, world economic in- outputs increased 20-fold, energy use 16-fold. And this puts it in perspective. More energy consumed just in this last century than all of human history before that. We've been on a, an amazing industrial uh, uh, scale, up, upward scale. And, of course, that has meant some tremendous gains uh, health-wise, medically, education, and so on, but at, at quite a cost, too. And a number of new risks. Thomas Merton was identifying the pesticides and the new agricultural impacts, but we have you know, thousands of unregulated chemicals and nuclear waste, et cetera. And our basic resource base, which is probably richer in North America than you know, many places in the world, uh, but thinking of the whole world, Almost half our forests gone, the fisheries overfished, bird species extinct, mammal, reptile, the species extinction is already in play. So it's, it's a difficult scenario to confront, and it's only been accelerating. So in the last 20 years, which, um, you know, remember back, where were you in 1988? That's 20 years ago. It's not that long ago in, a hu- in our human lives. And here's those same figures. And this is all from uh, Gus Beth's book, The Red Sky at Morning. You can see for yourself, everything's, none of those are down. They're all up, up, up uh, in terms of use and production. And so the conclusion that uh, Gus Beth came to, and I think many scientists are coming to at this point, is that we are dominating the planet as never before, uh, for better or for worse. It's a fact. And we've entered the end game in our traditional historical relationship. There's not really a point where we can't really go back to thinking of some pastoral ideal that we can return to through um, uh, a different vision. Uh, we're on a, t- a tighter, more uh, faster feedback loops with all of nature. In fact, uh, an ecologist, uh, Jane Lubchenko, who is the president at the time of the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, uh, said the conclusions are inescapable. During the last few decades, humans have emerged as a new force of nature. They're a new geological force. They're a new ecological force. Human activity is changing soils, changing rock formations. It's changing uh, habitat and ecosystem. Uh, We're moderating and modifying all of these systems in new ways at faster rates and over larger spatial scales than ever recorded on Earth. So it's a grand experiment. And I would encourage you to try and see it uh, with don't know mind because otherwise it just feels... A little too scary. So we don't really know what all this is going to, you know, how, how all these various forces will play out, and there's so many that it's very difficult to map them or predict. However, we do know that today um, there's a, a storm uh, brewing, and I don't mean just climate change, um, but it's at the intersection of many different factors, and that's where we really don't know. We do have a water crisis in many, many parts of the world. Those of you who work internationally know this much better than if you're in North America. We have our droughts, but, but we at least have you know, sanitation in most places, and we have piped water we can drink in most places, and that's not true in quite a bit of the world. Um, and even where we do have our piped water in uh, developed countries, our water tables are dropping, our aquifers are drying up, our rivers are empty. So... The water crisis is real. The food crisis is real. This is just in the last six months, if you're reading the news. It's uh, the shrinking grain reserves, um, 
the hoarding of food, the speculation over food commodities, and then people really starving from this. And it's a difficult thing to regulate because food is so concentrated in big agribusiness corporations. Uh, toxins and disease, we've had some near crises. We had the SARS, we had the avian flu, you know, scare. It's kind of only a matter of time around uh, the changing climate uh, promoting some, you know, pretty virulent pests. And then, you know, how will that be handled? And, of course, climate change is the one I could have talked about this whole morning. Now, and, again, not knowing really what will be the impacts and where will they be. But we're starting to see we, we aren't able to move as quickly as we'd like to because we have <clears throat> political and social systems that are full of disagreement. And we, we don't really want an eco-fascist czar ruling the whole world saying no one will drive ever again. So as human societies, we have to work these things out and come to agreements, but it takes time. And in the meantime, these extreme weather events like what just happened in Burma um, are, are taking a strong, very strong toll. So it's, a, it's serious. There's, there's no question about it being serious. So I thought to help us understand what the different uh, collective uh, impacts are, we, we would walk through, through some of the ways at least we teach and think about them. They interact. They feed on each other. It's a dynamic system. But um, it helps to understand them a little separately, too. And the, each of these are you know, fields where there's geologists, ecologists, hydrologists, many different kinds of scientists working on them. So we could start with just land degradation. Um, vast numbers of acres of wetlands, of forests, are, are being converted very often to, for human settlements, very often for agriculture. Um, and uh, particularly now the tropical forests are being converted for biofuel growth, uh, particularly in the Brazil and so on. And where, where they, the exploding human populations are occurring, of course, the urbanization and sprawl of those settlements fragments the land into smaller and smaller patches of forest or prairie or whatever the local ecosystem was. And uh, where agriculture has really expanded into dry areas, um, it overtaxed the land, we get these patterns of desertification. Very strong in Africa, across the middle of Africa, and China. This is a picture from China. It's, it's a very daunting picture from China, where the dunes uh, just keep moving and blowing, and um, it's actually a real concern for the Olympics this summer in Beijing, that they'll have a, one of these massive sandstorm attacks. And, you know, this doesn't just happen over there. The winds pick up these dust storms and sandstorms and blow them across the Pacific. They land in North America. So wherever land is being degraded, it isn't, the impacts aren't just local. They are local as well as global. And uh, we're just now beginning to be able to really track them and, and see um, how widespread those effects are. So all the impacts on our very uh, beautiful and naturally rich lands. And this is a map just to give you some sense of it. Uh, these are the types of soil degradation. So everywhere you see orange is erosion through water impacts, flooding and runoff. Uh, yellow would be the drier areas, so you're getting more blowing of soil uh, through wind erosion. Um, Chemical deterioration would be from, you know, too much fertilizer, pesticides, that kind of uh, chemical impacts on the soil or pollution from cities. Um, physical deterioration, uh, well, these are all also physical, but I think um, that may be more filling or drilling 
not as sure. But the dots maybe tell the most. Severe degradation would be the kind of uh, combination of all the other types of degradation. And you see now that this spreads across quite a bit of the globe where people live. The purple, which is the least impacted, stable terrain, well, not too many people live up there. It's pretty difficult to impact that, although now we have to see that with climate change, climate alone will begin to change it, and, and we, again, we don't know entirely how, but certainly not as fast as human activity. However, the warmer it gets, the more likely it is that people will move north to, to settle in those areas. So that um, gives you kind of the, a bigger picture of how this is something that's happening everywhere in the globe, and many of the kind of processes are well understood. It's also quite possible to reverse different degrees of degradation, and that's sort of the good news. There's a whole field of restoration ecology. So if it's a matter of erosion, there's ways to put in, you know, check dams and so on and stop some of the erosion. So uh, the processes are well understood. It's just they often, you know, get away from us. So the land degradation is one factor. Freshwater shortages, not just for drinking water, but also for um, the animals that prefer water habitats. Uh, so there's tremendous loss of river and stream habitat and also wetland habitat, I should say. And um, the amount of water that's diverted for irrigation um, sometimes actually drains the rivers dry. It's hard to realize sometimes, unless you see it, that these major, major, some of the largest river systems of the world, the Colorado, the Ganges, the Nile River, the Yellow River in China, are literally dry. The river basins are dry by the time they reach the ocean. And that's all from diversion through dams and irrigation channels and pipelines to cities uh, that that water is being used hard by human beings. So 60% of the world's major river basins and probably the biggest one, the most amazing project of all, the Three Gorges Dam in China. Uh, so human beings for a long, long time, probably our whole history, have seen water as an important resource to sustain our societies, our life, and have found ways to channel it, sometimes uh, productively and with le little impact on the land, and very often with the bigger scale the project, the more the impact. So now climate change, the classic graph. I just had to include it <laughs> so you could remember it, the up, up, up of carbon emissions. So um, let's see. Um, one uh, one of these, the, carbon, the red, is the carbon dioxide uh, changes, and it's a zigzag because of the seasonal variation. And the blue is the temperature rise, uh, average annual temperature. And that's, that's in a particular place, Mauna Loa, um, uh, the carbon dioxide concentrations, but the temperature is more a, a global change. So, you know, when they say the, it, the temperature is rising a half a degree a year or something. That's difficult to experience. This is much more what we experience is that we're starting to see about the ice melt. I, I know I showed my class um, when the New York Times uh, article came out about the Northwest Passage opening up. And we could just see they, had a, they have a, ter a great resource in their interactive graphics. And there was the ice cover, you know, four years ago and then three years ago and then two years ago. And suddenly ships could get all the way through. So the, the polar ice melt is much faster, both uh, north and south, than what we would see if there were glaciers here, you know, in the central latitudes. And in the tropics, what was the biggest impact is on the coral reefs. So it's possible that even within our lifetimes, most of the major coral reefs will be um, extinguished in a sense. They'll be so strongly impacted by the heat. 
And I think what we're seeing much more are the extreme weather events. Everybody now knows these stories, and you've probably experienced some of them in in your own uh, region. And the way I think about this as a metaphor is of a kind of pot of boiling water. If you think of our whole climate like that, you know, when you first put the water on the stove and it gets heated up, there's little tiny bubbles and you see them sort of, kind of sizzling up to the surface lightly. But if you leave that pot there, so more and more heat is going into it, as it is in our atmosphere, the bubbles get greater and greater. So the, the metaphor is for the scale of our weather systems. We used to have more isolated, smaller, fragmented weather systems causing little patterns here and there. But with the heating up, there are bigger movements of air bringing, you know, big movements of air off the Gulf of Mexico, for example, and fueling hurricanes and cyclones, or big Arctic air masses coming down and and impacting. So it's a little more unstable and precarious because the scale of the air movements is so much bigger. So if an area is in drought because all the air is moved to another area and carrying the moisture off, it may stay in drought for five years and so on. So the scale is what's important. We don't want to overlook uh, the ozone depletion as well. Um, again, in this country, we, we don't notice it as much in the wetter uh, northern climes, but in the south, the real risk of skin cancer is there, and uh, certainly in Australia and New Zealand, this is much more topic than news. And what, uh, what climate change often refers the most to is this greenhouse effect of the heating of the atmosphere that's sort of trapping the carbon dioxide underneath it. So that's sort of the good and the bad news. Without that greenhouse effect, we wouldn't have life on Earth. That's what really protects us from the scalding rays. Uh, But as it builds up underneath from all our activity, we get a graph like this. So we've talked about land, water, climate. But over-harvesting itself, just the use of all of our natural resources, is... um, a tale as old as humankind and all animals, for that matter. Human beings are really just extremely skillful animals. Uh, You can think of it that way. And harvesting what we need for our nests and our food sources has taken on a scale that uh, no squirrel or, you know, mouse ever could have conceived of. So what we've really impacted here, uh, a a lot of the marine fisheries have been overfished for a long time. I just mentioned some of the the big ones. Uh, And, of course, the forests, uh, any of you like me who are tree lovers, uh, may particularly experience this in a great sorrowing way, the loss of the whole coniferous forest, uh, quite fragmented now of the west coast of the old growth redwoods. Um, though I will say, living in Vermont and in the east, a number of forests have also come back, where people had taken forests out for sheep raising and allowed the forest to grow back. If it's a good seed bank, if the soils are rich, if the species are still all there, they can come back. So Forests are one of the more restorable uh, resources, although as climate changes, it might not be the same forest that was there before. So um, you see how much of our original forests in the U.S., 95% of the original forests have been cleared, even though a number of them have come back. And the latest wave is really in the south, the south and the southeast. This is where the tree plantations are. We've already moved from New England, the first cuttings of the white pines to make masts on the British ships, moved across the Midwest where the trees grew bigger and taller and beautiful Ohio Valley and so on, and then to the West. And once the trees in the West have been so deeply logged that it's not as economically viable, they're now working in the South. So unfortunately, um, we've been waiting for this sixth great wave of extinction, but we're actually 
in it at this point when we've lost a quarter of our marine uh, a quarter of our mammal species of our bird species of our reptiles the amphibians are particularly hard fit hard hit by the climate change um, now this map is not of the species that are gone but I want you to see the biodiversity hot spots where there's a very thick uh, proliferation of unusual, rare, or endemic species. So it's everywhere that it's kind of uh, red. And they, they're actually named and known, you know, ecologists love to study here. The California Floristic Province, for example, all of California, it's not just that it's a, an unusual place that draws people, but because of the combination of the northern uh, flora from Oregon, Washington, that uh, northern Pacific coast, and the southern flora coming up from Mexico, uh, it's a very, very rich place, and it was once very tropical, and now it's dried out, so you have refugia all through the state of wetter and moister places. But again, you can look at some of the others, the Caribbean islands, all these tropicals, uh, this land bridge all around the eastern and the western coast of the tropical Andes. And, uh, of course, all of this is one of the richest areas of all, Indonesia and Southeast Asia. And uh, it's why people are just so horrified at the loss of rainforest there, because we hardly even know what's over there. If those of you can see some of the numbers are the, the number of species they think are in these areas. So these in particular are the areas ec- ecologists would like to protect as a sort of genetic bank for the world and so we could just understand the complex ecologies of these arenas. Now any talk about threats would, could not overlook energy and our, our very high use of energy, our some have said, our addiction to oil, but you can think of it as a, maybe it'll be a bubble in human history that this last uh, century or half century has been such a frenetic intensification of the use of energy that we've uh, gone to great lengths to uh, find energy wherever we could. Um, Find all the oil fields, find all the gas fields, find the coal fields, and um, leaving out the numbers because they're just a little bit too overwhelming. You read about any one of these extractive industries and the amount of the number of dollars invested in them is enormous. And even just the number of coal cars, for example, if you're uh, from North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, and so on, you know those trains just keep going by filled with coal. If you're, uh, I'll show you a little bit later, a picture of Wyoming. If if you're in an area where they're exploring for natural gas, it's completely fragmented, the landscape. Or if you're in an area where they're growing biofuels, you, we cannot escape the impact of our, our great thirst and great need for energy, which is now being um, uh, accelerated dramatically by the growing economies in China and India, the, the two largest countries uh, in the world. Um, I did mention on here uh, also that there's some things we haven't quite figured out, like nuclear waste. What really will we do with um, sort of the end products of some of these uh, energy-intensive industries? And how far will we go to get that energy? You know, many, many people have said that the war in Iraq was for oil, and uh, it's sort of looking more and more like that as time goes on. We seem reluctant to leave that area, and there's many oil-rich areas over there though it's a long ways to get that oil back to the United States. So when you really think how much we've invested in it, maybe maybe even taking our economy uh, into a slump it hasn't been in in a long time, just to get that energy. So this is a kind of an indicator of how energy dependent our current economy is, our current lifestyle, and I mean globally. I don't mean just, I'm not, I don't want to point blame here particularly, but this is sort of where we've come to. 
a very energy-dependent and energy-intensive way of life. Now, I didn't start with human population increase, but I couldn't leave it out either. Um, in the, at the 1992 Earth Summit in uh, Rio de Janeiro, the North was full of finger-pointing about population, and they really wanted to take a stand that it was the fault of all those people in India, and probably in particular the women that were having too many babies. And that was the problem. The population was doubling, doubling, doubling. Well, the South would not hear that. You know, they said, we've been hearing this for 20 years since the summit in Stockholm in 1972. And, you know, we have a different analysis. And they pointed to the North. And the analysis was, you're consuming too much. So it isn't just a question of how many people, but how many people are doing what. So that debate has been very, very lively over the last 20 years. I'm happy to say it's a much more even-handed debate. And it's, uh, uh, and we'll talk about this later in the talk as well. What's, how do we look at the consumption side of the equation? But we cannot overlook the population issues. And the other, uh, other piece of this has been difficult to talk about this in the country, this country. Um, population has fallen off the screen of the public environmental dialogue. Now, why is that? <laughs> um, probably the biggest reason is because of the uh, abortion issue. And anything to do with uh, moderating your family planning seems to invade a global perspective on uh, how to think about the number of people the Earth can sustain from an environmental perspective. So we have a kind of clash of uh, moral and ethical values and that debate in, in this country and being able to talk about it environmentally. Um, it, it's, and that's extended uh, more dramatically into some of the southern countries. Any of you who've been on missions in South America uh, know about the global gag rule, as it's called down there, that you simply, abortions are not allowed and you will not get any family planning support from the United States if that's part of your family planning model. So population planning and family planning has really um, lost ground in the last 20 or 30 years. We were on a, a much better, saner trajectory a while ago when the population bomb was published and people really realized. But um, it has, we haven't gained, made all the gains we could have from that if we'd stayed on that same path. So um, we don't just have uh, urbanization, explosion of this population at a great size, but we also have a, a kind of change in where people are. They're not in, more than half the world is in cities now. So we've had a, a sort of sociological revolution. People have moved to the cities because they needed a livelihood um, in developed countries as well as developing countries. So it's a shift, a demographic shift in where people are located and what they're trying to do for a living. People are also migrating because the impacts are so great from war or from environmental disasters. I mean, we saw it in, in this country as when Katrina happened. There was a mass environmental migration out of New Orleans, and, it, and people have not returned in the same numbers. So they, those would be classified as environmental refugees. And, and there are many, and then of course in China and Burma, the same thing is happening right now. With human population, you get an increase in all our garbage. <laughs> we just keep generating it. Um, solid waste as well as hazardous waste. And one of the, the leading contributors to hazardous waste right now is biomedical waste. You know when you go to the doctor, they have their little place you have to put the used needles and so on. And this is really since the AIDS epidemic. 
uh, some new consciousness about the possibility of spreading disease. And other, other illnesses, we haven't, like some of the staph infections that you get in the hospital, they don't have drugs for. There's, there are scary diseases that we need to be more careful about as a result of our waste. And, and as part of that, an explosion both in plastics and in electronic waste. The plastics pollution is, um, I put this picture up because it, it communicates it the most graphically, but there's now in the center of the North Pacific Ocean and the gyre that kind of makes a big a loop there, an area the size of Texas, some say it's getting bigger, closer to the size of Africa, but that's just a collection of plastic debris, the size of Texas. It's a slightly depressed center in the middle of the gyre, so everything that keeps swirling around in the big eddy eventually collects there. And it's little tiny bits of plastic. It's big bits of plastic. But what is happening as a result of that is that animals at all different levels on the food chain are ingesting the plastic. The plastic bags are eaten by turtles who think they are floating jellyfish. The little tiny nanoparticles are being taken in by the the zooplankton who think they're little bits of phytoplankton. So plastic is penetrating our our marine food webs in a a way I think we, we haven't even begun to get a handle on. And it doesn't really break down out in the ocean. It, um, it photodegrades somewhat, but it, it, still, it just stays there. It, it loses its color, and it, it doesn't really physically break down. There's no, um, nothing pushing, you know, breaking it into, it's just getting more brittle in smaller pieces. And apparently the leading, and certainly ships are dumping at sea, but the leading source is plastics coming off the, from the beach, from the, uh, from the land side, um, or from around the world. You might have a clean beach in Northern California, but if there's a trash collecting somewhere else, it'll still make it to this North Pacific gyre. And then I mentioned electronic waste because um, this is something of great concern and not yet well regulated. We really are trying to understand how to work with electronic waste. And for the most part now, it's, well, we don't even know. It's ending up in landfills. It's being shipped to China or Africa for uh, so-called recycling, where they actually take everything apart there's some very dramatic films about this and the way things are recycled there is without proper protections uh, just to get anything that's still reusable, little bits of gold or wires or uh, one, of the, one of the greatest businesses that's evolved over in China, little did we know, is that they're taking all the computer monitors and turning them into televisions because they're perfectly good you know, cathode ray tubes and perfectly good housings and so they're big factories just to do that. But in terms of international regulations, national regulations, we haven't got a handle on how to either ban or regulate or use as a trade this, this new growing electronic waste. And it includes, of course, cell phones and as well as computers, blackberries, etc. And in about a year, it's going to include a lot of televisions, which are, you know, because the old way of communicating television signals is being displaced. So everybody's old televisions will end up somewhere. Um, so I, I tried to combine these areas uh, into these six with some subcategories so you could kind of see uh, the land, the water, the climate, the use of resources, uh, energy, and population. Uh, it kind of gives the big picture. All these, within any single category, a lot is happening. You know, like I said, I, could, I gave a whole class just on electronic waste a year ago. Um, when a couple of new books came out, and we could finally understand something about it. But when you put it all together, it's a pretty big picture. Now, for better or for worse, I think what's beginning to get people's attention is that 
the so-called human nature divide uh, was just an idea in our minds. We've always been part of nature. We are living, breathing animals that are consuming and contributing to the natural world. And so, of course, it's having an impact on our health. And the field of environmental toxicology and environmental (coughs) health is growing very, very quickly. Our understandings of disease uh, as uh, environmentally related and is growing very quickly, too. So I thought to um, uh, add to this kind of litany or list, we should look at the human health uh, impacts from drive from environmental sources. So first is the toxins. This is right out of our little textbook, you know, like, this could be me. Um, <laughs> and all these things coming in, whether it's exposure to mercury from uh, fish that uh, have high mercury levels, um, or pesticide and chemical exposure, uh, Pesticide Action Network is one of my my favorite um, environmental groups because they do so much good ecological science mapping and tracking pesticide impacts, where they are and how they affect people and what the medical results are. We now know that a number of pesticides and other toxins in the uh, like dioxin in the uh, that have permeated our ecosystems act like endocrine disruptors in the human system. And that means they mimic um, our, our endocrine uh, hormones, our estrogens and so on, and cause uh, maybe cancerous growth or other impacts in the system because your, your body thinks that they are, uh, are real endocrine uh, hormones, but they're, they're not. So they either mimic or disrupt or block in different ways. And then I put on here plastics ingestion. This was my... The newest thing I added to my course in Unlearning Consumerism last spring, uh, trying to learn a lot about this presence of plastics. And I had the students among our, our many different exercises. Every week they would do a different kind of survey or exercise or self-assessment. So I had them go check uh, the plastics in where they lived, in the bathrooms and the kitchens. And we were looking on the back for recyclable numbers and trying to map uh, which of these are, you know, are gonna, can at least be moved on. Well, it turned out that the highest number of items that didn't have a recyclable number on the back were cosmetics. And they were quite, you know, and things, the bathroom supply kinds of things. And they even further, and and then I gave them a little database online where you could look up your actual product. So they were to check, you know, pick your dandruff shampoo or whatever and see um, how it rates by this database. And we, I didn't know this myself, we found out that a lot of those scrubs, you know, to like get your skin really clean. It isn't just oatmeal in them that's rubbing against your skin. It's nanoplastic particles. So all those are getting washed down through the shower drain. And um, uh, cosmetics are not regulated the same way food products are. So any of those things you see on there that say organic or natural, it's completely bogus. There's no real FDA regulation. So I'm going on about that a little bit because this is my latest sort of Shocking front, I guess you'll say, the plastics. So the, the multiple toxins coming in that we, you know, some, some of us are affected more by some of these than others, also coming in through our foods. And, of course, in some places it's the air and water pollution that have the greatest impact. We know asthma is on the rise at an astonishing rate, uh, particularly in urban areas from uh, the air pollution, in places where... Um, UV radiation is high. Uh, skin cancers are on the rise unless people are reprotecting really from that. 
in many of the areas where water pollution is serious, and we see these after big disasters, particularly where the water can, can't be processed and where disease pathogens get in very quickly, you have outbreaks of cholera or diarrhea. Um, the wa- water's a great place for pathogens to grow, so very quickly they will if the conditions are good. Um, and we've seen now that uh, Escheria coli, the there's a very famous brand of that, the one that can kill people within a few within a few days, grows in processed meat products and in other foods. And if you have an outbreak of it somewhere, it, it needs to be contained very quickly, or we have to find the food sources, or we'll have you know strong impacts. Now another one that not too many people have heard about um, in our water pollution, we're now getting high levels of drugs that have been flushed down through our water systems. So all of you may actually be on birth control, and you didn't know it. <laughs> maybe, maybe this will actually be helpful for the monastic cause. I don't know. Um, and also antidepressants, very, since, since so many people are using them. And uh, in this country, we have uh, a lot of barriers against being able to either uh, reuse or share or recycle these medications. Um, People have actually designed systems to be able to do this. If you know you know it's a certain drug, why not you know pool the pills and pass it on? I know in nursing homes, for example, when somebody dies, the one of the protocols of closing down that file is just to you know put into the trash all all of the remaining drugs of any kind. They they cannot be used for anybody else. So um, no shortage of issues there in terms of threats to human health. Now, for the science fiction writers, we have emerging diseases, uh, which could take any sort of form. This map is of uh, some of the most recent outbreaks. These are all since the 1990s. So you might remember some of these. when they, There was a terrible cholera plague in Peru, a dengue fever outbreak in Mexico, the hantavirus, for some of you from the south, that's a particularly scary one. West Nile virus, we now know, has uh, moved into the bird populations and the mosquito populations. It's pretty much in, I think, all 50 states now, maybe 48. And so that was just 1999. So in less than a decade, that particular virus has spread. Remember Legionnaire's disease? That was a big mystery. We thought that was going to be the world plague. Um, but these are probably the ones that have been on our minds the most, the SARS epidemic that was kept under wraps in China with that spread because it was being carried um, by air transport. And bird flu is probably the one that people most expect to re-arise. I mean, every year, uh, many thousands, millions of animals are slaughtered where bird flu has been detected. Actually, a tremendous waste of food. It's um, you think, couldn't we just eat it or freeze it or do something? Uh, because that fear of this outbreak is so great. Um, in universities, uh, there's a federal mandate to do epidemic planning, and our own universities had a number of sort of open houses around this. It's the real question becomes: if there's an epidemic outbreak. Uh, will you keep people on campus or send them home? And how will you determine it? And if you keep them on campus, how will you feed them? And uh, it, it's a, a big, a major health issue. Um, how will, will we teach, keep, keep, keep teaching classes? All those questions arise. Um, so we, and that's without even mentioning the existing epidemic of AIDS and HIV, uh, which even though it's been contained quite a bit in this country, the drugs have made a huge difference. Uh, it's been much more difficult in Africa and, and in Southeast Asia. 
We now have our own epidemic of obesity, as we've all seen um, in this country, over half the people, I believe, uh, and certainly in certain age classes, uh, are classified as obese and have all the associated health risks from that. So that's a kind of disease of consumption um, as in terms of a health disease. And some of the old diseases we thought we'd conquered are now turning up drug-resistant varieties. Our drugs can't keep up with the evolution of diseases. Pathogens are very small. You know, bacteria, viruses, they can change and adapt and grow and evolve much more quickly than uh, big animals like us. So we're at their mercy. They're really in charge of all this. You, you didn't know that. but Now, the waste itself is a th- can be a threat to human health as well um, because when it's not collected. And, we, you know, we are accustomed to thinking of this, these kinds of garbage mounds as existing in Mexico or uh, Africa or China or India. But actually, Italy is the one right now that's not picking up their trash. Uh, you know, the local mayor is like, this is the big issue. Because, of course, it attracts rodents and attracts disease carriers, vectors, and um, uh, sets up these strange uh, economies that are hard, you know, it's hard to say they're productive sorting through them. So I mentioned the plastics debris, the e-waste trade. The plastics debris gyre itself isn't affecting human health yet, but what we don't know is how the things in the food chain will carry those plastics up and through the process of bioaccumulation. We've seen that process with the DDT, mercury, and other toxins that the little things are eaten by the bigger things and they just carry it further up the food chain. So maybe those plastics will yet make it to us. Um, and the e-waste toxic trade, it's called in the lingo because it's really moving toxins from one country to another. Um, uh, we're starting to see the tremendous water pollution in those uh, countries. Uh, Basal Action Network has uh, two very good videos on this that you can get for very cheap. I thought about bringing them along here too, where you actually see the people taking apart the computers and what effect it has. So... Um, not to mention, you know, heavy metals from mining, leaching into water tables, unregulated nuclear waste. Uh, and you know how long the fight's been going on about moving our nuclear waste to Yucca Mountain. Nevada doesn't want it, and the Shoshone Indians do not want it. And we all really understand that concentrated nuclear waste is a kind of disaster waiting to happen. And... Then, of course, war. And I thought I'd just give you clip art for this because the actual images would be so horrible. Um, but we know that uh, preparing for war uh, makes uh, has tremendous impacts on the lands where the tanks are moving back and forth. Much of Nevada and the southwest has many military bases, for example, and practicing your bombing. You, that takes a lot more to restore lands after that. Um, perhaps one of the greatest impacts right now of uh, in preparing for war, now let me back up and say this, the current administration uh, has been one of the strongest in terms of exempting all military activity from environmental regulations. One of the places we're seeing that play out right now is around uh, sonar testing of the Pacific coast. And it's, it has a big impact on whales and, any, and the dolphins that use sonar to navigate. And... Um, there's been suits and lawsuits back and forth and judges overturning and then the Bush administration saying, no, no, I'm going to write an exemption regulation. I don't, I'm sorry that the judge ruled that way, but we're just going to change it. And so now National Resources Defense Council is 
is now challenging that, and it's uh, because of this issue of should military override every other possible environmental concern. So it's uh, in, in the policy arena, this is a big battle. Uh, within war itself, a number of war tactics are environmental tactics. Just um, uh, They're called scorched earth policies. It might be literally burning the earth or it might be damaging it so badly, like with Agent Orange during Vietnam, that was to, defor- to uh, basically defoliate all of the mangrove forests on, around the edge of Vietnam, which still is, a, still is having an impact on human beings over there today in terms of birth rates and... Um, cancer rates from that uh, uh, Agent Orange to dioxin. And of course, you know, shock and awe is shocking and awful to um, uh, animals and plants. It's impressive to human populations, but it it obliterates the animals and plants. And then we have this not so much ecological, but when you spend a lot of money on on military, uh, and the U.S. now itself spends half the world's expenditures on, on military are just from the United States alone. And the U- U.S. is one of the greatest uh, uh, trades in small arms. So this is actually a place where um, a human pressure could make quite a bit of difference, I think, in terms of where do we want to spend our money. But it's definitely taking from covering our basic human needs for education, for health care, social welfare. And then the, the refugees I mentioned before, we have not just inv- we have environmentally derived refugees from war, but we also have uh, just people that must leave a war-torn area and find some other way to live. And so then they become a greater human impact on other local resource bases. And I, I, there is a theory, not everybody agrees with it, but that uh, a number or a high proportion of our wars are resource-driven, that we're, we're after oil or after water. Those are the primary two uh, um, by some of the peace studies scholars, Michael Clare in particular. So the more conflicts you have, of course, that's fueling instability. And one thing we do know is if you want to do ecological restoration or you want to move towards sustainability, you need a stable society. It's very difficult to do that in the middle of conflict. So I, I added this. This is not always part of an ecological analysis. Um, maybe it's my own you know, Zen way of thinking about it. But uh, peace and war are, I believe, a very important pillar of understanding things ecologically because, of, uh, because peace can offer so much towards ecological stability and war can damage so much so quickly. So this is the point where I... I wanted to stop in the middle of this talk. We'll be going on to uh, looking at the whole picture, doing some analysis, the global ecological footprint. But I think leaving us uh, to talk in small groups about our concerns first before we uh, do so much thinking. So here's uh, what I'd like to have you do for maybe as much as somewhere between 30 and 45 minutes. We'll see how long it takes. And I'll, I'll try and ring some bells to help us uh, you know, come along with that. But you started by writing down an area of concern you were engaged in. That's a place where you still actually have some power to make some difference. And that's very important to stay grounded with that. So in the small groups, what I'd like to have you do, and maybe groups of three, so everybody has lots of time to talk, is to first introduce yourselves ecologically. What's your home ecosystem? Is it a prairie? Is it a forest? What's your local river or mountain range? Give people a picture 
of you as a member of your local environment. You, just by living there, you are a part of a watershed. And if you can name it, great. If you're part of the Ohio River watershed, or I'm like from the Winooski River watershed that feeds into Lake Champlain that you saw there. So take a, a minute or so to go around a little circle of your three to give an ecological introduction. And then, then make another circle of your concern you're involved in. Uh, or you could combine those if you like. And then go to the concern that you feel uh, a strong sense of caring around, but you don't know quite how to work with it. And um, I'd like to ask you as you do these circles um, in the first part to just listen as each person talks. And once you've gone through those uh, three sort of cycles, then you can have more of a conversation um, supporting each other. But the listening is a very important part of witnessing our concerns, of being able to be present with that. And it helps uh, a lot to overcome the many emotions that arise around this, to just not feel alone with it. So then at the end of your conversations, and I'll ring the bell and be able to call out some reminders on this, I, I want you to be able to share some resources, just one good book you've read or one really great website because I think we have a lot of knowledge base here. We don't all have to be professors of environmental studies to share the resources we have. And then, uh, you know, take a bathroom or tea break, too, in the middle of while we're in our small groups, and then we'll come back here for the sort of analytical part in the second half of this talk. So it's about 9.30 right now. So um, I would say turn to whoever's in your local group, but if you can, try and make sure you've got... a at least one Buddhist and at least one Christian. So this can be a kind of a Buddhist-Christian dialogue. And you can go into the dining room or you can rearrange your chairs here and start with that opening introduction and your opening concerns. And then I'll ring a bell in about 15 minutes to indicate you should be sure you've gone on to your uh, concerns that, for which you don't have answers yet.